what do I pray for if I kind of already have everything mm. that I that I want? And viewing prayer as, man, I already got this house and my health's pretty good. There's not anybody around me who's really sick or in need of a miracle. I've got food, I've got income. And I just got done reading the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis, where he talks uh, from the point of view, the percep- mm-hmm. perspective of the enemy. And he says one of, the, one of their greatest tactics is to just give us the gift of abundance. When you think about the profound influence of the Bible on the world, the way that it has shaped our culture, whether you're a follower of Christ or not, it's probably a good idea that you know at least what it says. It's going to be about us taking and reading the Bible. All right. Welcome back to the Take and Read podcast in the studio, the Take and Read studio, which is just my office. Uh, we have Parker Smith back with us. How you doing, buddy? I'm a little wet. A little wet. Yeah. So right before we we jumped into recording, this is actually our second take this is the first time in Take and Read podcast history that I've done two takes on a show. But the first take was only maybe 20 seconds long. And when you uh, start a podcast, I saw this done somewhere, so I do it. I don't know, even know if it's necessary, but to sync the audio and the video. So if you're watching on YouTube, there's a there's a different audio that goes into the computer and you're supposed to clap in front of the microphone and it syncs up the visual and the audio for editing. But in the first take of this episode, I clapped and somehow knocked over my water glass onto you, your Bible, your lap, your seat. So you're sitting there right now with uh, your little damp. If you hear some crinkling, it's because I'm uh, sitting on a bag because the the seat is wet. I think you were just waking me up. Maybe. Yeah, like, hey, come on, snap too. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, so you're, it's a little humid in here. Uh, but other than that, how you doing? I'm doing great. Okay. I'm doing great. Best time of the year, April in Texas, sunny April in about in 80. The blue bonnets starting to come out. Yep. So yeah, it's really, it's deceptive because you think, man, this is just amazing. But give it four weeks. It's going to be hot. I think that spring might be an old man season to like because it doesn't get as much hype when you're a kid. You love summer, you're getting out of school. Right. Everybody loves fall and the holidays, Christmas, Thanksgiving. But spring, there's not much special about it to a kid. But when you're an adult... You're like, man, this weather's great. Look at those trees blooming. Look at those beautiful flowers. Yes. I don't know. I was I like, maybe it. I'm getting old. Yeah. So in in your upbringing, did, what were some kind of family traditions around spring? Did you guys have things that initiated because you kind of come out of that winter season and, or was it always about anticipating summer? Always about anticipating summer. Yeah. Spring was pretty chill. We ran track. My brothers and I ran track in the spring, but we weren't baseball guys. So everything's pretty much over after Christmas break yeah. with football being over. So that's just when off season starts, when track workouts start, and you're kind of just cruising, looking forward to the summer. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, I was, my daughter's running track right now. So she, she does a couple of field events, jumping stuff, and then she does some sprints. But track meets are no joke. That's not a, hey, we're going to go to the game and it may take an hour, hour and a half. Track meets are all day yeah. long. I mean, they're, and you're out there in the sun and there's a whole, like, there's a, you're in this with other families, like you're enduring this with other families. It's an interesting thing. Do you remember track being like that? Like these all day endeavors? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Uh, it, there's not, nothing quite like the adrenaline rush of being on the track before the gun goes off. I will yeah. say, I haven't been there as a spectator <laughs> like you have many times. It's a little bit different <laughs> when you're in it and it's all about you. So I'm sure that's a different level of patience. But I will say as much as those practices were, were hard on you, the adrenaline rush of a gun going off and, and uh, just a literal race on your feet, there's something so, something deep in your bones and blood about it's that. Primal. Yeah. What events did you do? I ran the 200 and uh, that's it. I ran the 200 uh, by myself and then the, the 4 by 200 where were relay. you at in the on the relay team? Where what leg? I was second leg. Okay, so you had to kind of take that turn, right? Yes. Okay. Very cool. Yeah, yeah I was a I was a track guy. Ran varsity track. Our uh, our team won state my senior year, four uh, A Colorado State, and uh, I was not the reason why we won state. I was an eight hundred meter runner mm. and a two miler. Oh, it sounds awful. It was the worst. Two mile is the race where it's eight laps and people forget the event still happening. Like it was not uncommon for us to be running out there and either we as athletes would lose track of what lap we were on, but also like people thought it was like a timeout in the track meet. And so you would have individuals just crossing across the track and they would forget, oh, there's runners coming. So it was like the time people went to the concession it was also at the end of the track meet, so people were kind of done for the day. So they're like, oh, the two miles up before the 4x4, the four four, which is a really fun relay to watch. And they would just kind of pack up their bags and head to the car and get everything situated and then come back for the main event and then leave. So, yeah, it wasn't a, a widely attended race. But anyway. When I, yeah. hear, when I hear the word race now, I, I think of uh, a quote that I heard uh, a pastor talking about when Paul says to run the race that's been yeah. set before us. And he said that the, wor- the word that he uses for race is agon, which uh, has turned into the English form of agony. Mm-hmm. So to run the, which is a form of extreme mental and physical suffering. Yeah. And so he says for each of us to run, to endure the mental and physical suffering that has been laid out for us. What, a, what a, an attractive invitation to the Christian life, right? <laughs> if any of you like to run long distances, which 1% of the population maybe falls into that category, most people are like, I do not like to run. It's a love-hate relationship. But there's a, an agony involved, and Paul's saying that's, I mean, that's, that's the reality that it took me quite a while to realize that the Christian life there is a lot of it has to do with embracing suffering, not pursuing suffering necessarily. Like not like we're looking for pain, but 
realizing that what a lot of the Christian life and one of the gifts of God as we follow Christ is this denial of self. And so the flesh always wants its way. And when it doesn't get its way, it it's not comfortable. It doesn't like it when it doesn't get. So when we kind of put whatever, you know, fleshly appetites at bay, that's suffering. Or when we are persecuted or do things God's way versus the world's way, there's going to be a a suffering involved, an agony. So that's a that's a good quote. Yeah, that's a good call. Uh, so yeah, any any updates? How's uh how's engagement? How's I feel like I'm in a I feel like I'm in a strange dream at hmm. this point of engagement. We've been dating for we had dated for six months, and we the engagement will be over five months, and it just feels like a strange. Uh, a strange dream of of having really deep, meaningful conversations, having emotional and spiritual intimacy, and then and then saying, "All right, see you at about eight thirty and then and then it it's just weird, yeah, you're building towards a life together, and you're in this weird season that as you continue to build that connection. There's still so it's starting to feel awkward when that connection is put is paused, mm. you know. Yeah. So I think I think that's that's probably a good good experience, and it just means that you're moving towards a more natural season of life, which will be your life together. That's pretty cool. Yeah, uh, I, I'm I'm definitely taking it day by day. Yeah, and it's been a good season of I'm not gonna say. I just can't wait and for this. I just can't wait to, you know, finally be married, to have the wedding planning over to blah blah blah. Just to sit back and 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 say, man, I'm so grateful for this day and that mm. the sun's out today and that I don't have any physical pain and that, you know, I'm saved and yeah. You know. It how is there a way in which you in that same regard, do you have to force yourself to like in this season, because the, embracing this season may be difficult because you're looking towards the the next season, which is life together, marriage life, being with your best bud, and that you have to, you can't live for the weekend. You can't, you can't pine for that time as much as just be here and now, or is that a struggle that you have? Or you're trying to find the positive right now, and what does the Lord have for me today in this season, even though I can't wait for the next? Yeah, exactly what you said. I think it's a, a constant daily reminder of uh, pretty much every day, and I think all of us go through this uh, in, in terms of contentment and fulfillment and, and, and choosing joy where you are right now when when you feel those feelings of of worry and anxiety of tomorrow and the year and if God's going to provide and just really taking that daily bread prayer seriously in the morning mm. of just today. And, and the morning prayer has turned into survival mode instead of instead of this is something that I have to do or it's God's gonna view me in a better light because I do this. It's my prayers for, uh, for contentment and for uh, praying against you know pride and different sin struggles it's been 
just get me through today and I'm not going to worry about tomorrow. And, and, and I have faith that you're going to provide just for today. And, uh, and it's grown a different level of dependence. Yeah. Uh, will you speak into, cause you bring up something or you, you allude to this idea of prayer in the morning and I'd love, I'd love to hear, and I'm sure others would love to hear what, how does prayer play a role in your morning routine? Like, what does that actually look like? Yeah, I, I, uh, I've, I've been a believer for about a year now. And so it's been interesting to see that progression take place. So for those listening who've been believers for a long time, uh, it will be interesting to hear the, uh, a different perspective or if you're not a believer or, or whatever, I don't know, I guess it's just. Well, you'd be surprised. Like even as a pastor and somebody who's been walking the, with the Lord for roughly 25 years, it's amazing how when I get to be around somebody who has just given their life to the Lord and is a new believer, the freshness with which they attend the fundamental components of following Christ, it, it's refreshing for me. And it makes me kind of take inventory like, man, I remember those early days where, you know, where's that fire? Have I lost sight of that discipline and the benefits? So yeah, it's good for the veterans out there to hear what your routine is. Absolutely. Yeah. I, uh, for a lot of us and, and for me, before I was saved, when words would come out of my mouth, it was uh, me asking, asking for things mm-hmm. and then viewing prayer in that light of there's this genie who's going to get me things if I ask for it. The Bible says, if I ask for it, I'm going to get it. So this is great. So I'm going to ask for stuff. That's interesting. The, the analogy of a genie, right? That I'm going to just, I have this avenue I can request things and hopefully I get them. Yeah. And I was talking to a guy the other day who's who is uh, going to church. He's not so sure about mm. all of uh, this yet, but he's definitely interested. And he said, one of, one of the things that I don't understand is what do I pray for if I kind of already have everything mm. that, I, that I want and viewing prayer as, man, I already got this house and my health's pretty good. There's not anybody around me who's really sick or in need of a miracle. I've got food, I've got income. And I just got done reading the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis, where he talks uh, from the point of view, the, perce- mm-hmm. the perspective of the enemy. And he says, one of the one of their greatest tactics is to just give us the gift of abundance and uh, to not have uh, uh, any particular needs to, ca- to uh, that would cause us to rely on God for anything. And mm. it was it was interesting to hear this other guy's perspective of what prayer is and for me, I could talk about it for a long time. I'm trying to think of the best way to summarize it. But, but, <laughs> but for me, uh, it's been, it's been a, a shift of mindset to uh, it's not what I want, but it's what you want because you made me and you made my soul and my heart and my body. And just like Ford knows exactly what to put in their truck engine, mm-hmm. God knows exactly what is needs to be put in my soul and my heart and my mind. Mm. And then so just releasing that closed hand of I want this and that because I don't trust you to just viewing that prayer as no, no, I, like all I need is this, just grant me this peace today. 
help me to seek your will, not mine today, because I'm going to mess it up. And I heard someone say, it was uh, Tim Keller, uh, who's a pastor the other day, said that, and I don't know if this is true, so fact check me on this if you're listening, but <laughs> he said that in all of Paul's prayers, he never once once asked uh, for a change of circumstance, but he did ask for the thorn to be re- removed from his mm-hmm. side. But uh, it, it, it was just an interesting audit of my own prayers and saying, am I just constantly asking for God to change right. things that he's put in front of me? Or is it more a matter of, uh, is he putting those things for me to depend on him? And just kind of the logistics around that when that prayer happens, are you, is it in conjunction with your Bible reading time? Is it accompanied by a list of prayer requests that you have or that other people have given you? Like, is there any, when does this take place and what are the circumstances around it? Yeah, I wake up, I uh, brush my teeth, which is a hot topic. Hot topic here. Pre, pre-coffee or post-coffee brusher or both, right? And I, I remember talking to a friend about this and uh, he, he said that the first words that I want to, to come out of my mouth, I, 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 not the first words, but the first thoughts that I have, I want them to be uh, to God. And the first thing that I want to put my eyes on is not social media and other people, but I want it to be the word of God. And that was one of his goals for that year was what if the very first thing, the words that came out of my mouth were to God and and the first thing that my eyes saw were the words of God. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's something special about having that be sometime in the morning and starting your day off uh, just in reverence. And so are you a physical Bible reader or a phone? I switch off. Because I would imagine the temptation, and we've talked about that, not you and I, but I've talked about it out on the podcast, to have my phone Bible app there, the ability to then just have push notifications or swipe and just kind of check out some social media. Yeah. tempting, so curious. I, I keep my phone charging in the, the kitchen, and when I go into my bedroom, that's a no electronic zone. Oh, wow. And so it's a, I close that door and it's a, ah, it's such a feeling of relief. It's like a monastery in your room, huh? (laughs) It's, (laughs) it is, it is, uh, it's very peaceful. And and whether you know it or not, when I have my phone around me, I'm going to be on social media. And now I think about it, I'm like, man, I could not imagine scrolling Instagram right before I go to bed and just have those be the last thoughts of other people Mm -hmm. and and, and other people's circumstances and they're a highlight reel. And so, but the, the, the first thing I do when I wake up is get on my knees in my, my bed and uh, pray through the Lord's Prayer and then uh, confess sin. And then I have a list of people that I'm praying for and, th- and then specific things that I'm praying for for my specific sin struggles. And then I will uh, journal. I go in the next room. I have a gratitude journal where I write three things that I'm grateful for, my purpose in life. And then I'll go through the verses that I'm memorizing that you gave me. I'll write down every verse. I think it's like 18 verses. I'll write down every single one. I'll say it out loud and write it down. And then I will focus on the one that I'm currently mm-hmm. on memorizing. And then I will go into my, my Bible reading plan, which is either the physical Bible or I'll have my phone on Do Not Disturb and do it on an app there because the words are nice and big and bright. And yeah. I do enjoy that. Cool. Thanks, man. Yeah. It's fun to hear people's routines. And you, you physically get on your knees and are you kind of elbows on the bed or are you like 
on the ground. I'm elbows on the bed and it felt super silly the first time that I did it. And I felt like an idiot, honestly. Hmm. I was like, I, this feels dumb. Uh, I remember talking to a friend and he said, yeah, you should really try it. It's, it is, uh, to bring up C.S. Lewis again, he said, one of the biggest tactics of the enemy is make them think that their body position when they pray doesn't affect their spirit or their soul. Not to say that you have to be in a particular right. position to pray. I feel like I have to say that. But there's something about getting on your knees uh, to, it's a, a form of surrender that I have just enjoyed when I've thought of that prayer of, of once you're born again and the words, hallowed be your name, come out of your mouth. It just makes you want to get on your knees and it's uh, a posture of humility too, right? Right. You're saying you're submitting, like you said, it's a a posture of submission, humility. I remember reading one time that one of the gifts of prayer is that it's it's something we can do regularly that exercises faith and demonstrates humility. Because at the same time, when you are praying to the God of the universe. You're admitting that you think he's listening to some degree, right? That he's listening, that he cares, that he can, and that you're admitting you can't. And so there's a humility in that. So it's the, an act of, I trust God and I admit that I am not him. And so there's this beautiful kind of simultaneous demonstration of faith and humility. Mm. And so a posture like that, I think... It helps people. So it's a, it's a good challenge for me too to just think about are, are there ways in which I could take advantage of the posture of my body to foster a certain attitude and bring maybe a, a sobriety to the moment. So that's cool. Thanks for sharing, man. Shout out, uh, leave a comment if you are also a kneeling prayer. That'd be cool to know all those out there listening. All right, well, we came here to take and read the Word of God. We are, <clears throat> hey, you like that voice crack? So I went for a run this morning, as I was telling you, and so there's all kinds of stuff I'm coughing up. Anyway, we'll make it through it. Maybe Alex can edit out that voice crack, but now he can't edit out all this commentary about it, so maybe you should leave it in. <laughs> be good. Last episode, I had LJ on, and you kind of j- you hear him talk, and you're like, man, is my voice really that, you know, kind of, high-pitched or because his is just so smooth Mm. good anyway here we are all righty so we are in mark chapter five last uh episode we looked at the first part of that chapter and that's an episode where in the life and ministry of jesus he uh, travels to a, a region of the decapolis area which was primarily gentile he encounters a man that is possessed by a legion of demons. Some interesting things to note about that is that he, this, this demon-possessed man, so being possessed by the demons, as soon as they, make, I, they, they see Jesus, there's a submission to him. They run, and it says they fall, like the man possessed by the demon falls at his feet, begins to beg for mercy. Jesus exercises those demons, demonstrates authority. They go into a herd of pigs and run down a hill into the water and 
die. We don't know if the demons are destroyed or anything, but that's the scene that we're coming off of as we enter this next scene. And it's a it's a pretty good chunk. So as we get into it, uh, we'll just take our time reading through, but you'll see why we kind of have to read through the whole thing because there's, there's kind of an opening scene. There's this middle section where something else happens as they're on their way to the final scene, which connects to the first thing. So there's kind of three scenes that occur as we look at this. So we are in Mark chapter 5. We'll start in verse 21. We are reading out of the English Standard Version of the Bible. And so if you're following along, just know if you hear a different word, it may be because we're reading a different translation, but it's all good. All right, we jump in. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a large, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease." Now, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talithakumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Well, there you have it. There's a lot there. 
So we, when we first jump into a, a text like this, we want to, we want to make sure we understand what it says. And so part of, part of that is just understanding the context. So we know, okay, he's, he's gotten back into the boat. He's crossed to, uh, back to the other side. And now he's back in a Jewish territory after, after leaving kind of a primarily uh, Gentile area. We see that he interacts with this ruler of a synagogue. So that, that would be a Jewish ruler. So a leader within the Jewish society. And this Jewish ruler uh, uh, makes a request. His daughter's ill, and he believes that Jesus can, can heal her. She's at the point of death, he says. Come lay your hands on her so that she may be made, made well and live. So this idea that this is potentially a last resort for this dad. Uh, maybe we don't know the extent of his faith. We know that there's a, com- a component of his faith that is challenged in verse 36 where Jesus says, do not fear, only believe, because people have reported now that she's actually passed away. But um, So, you've, yeah, you've got this, this context where he's back in this, this area. There's a crowd yet again. He's got his disciples with him. And so he agrees to go with the guy. And then you've got this interesting scene where as he's on his way to Jairus' daughter, wherever she is, there's this kind of crowd incident and a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years is also finds in him her last resort, which is interesting. Any thoughts? Yeah. Uh the scene of him, uh, the scene of him walking with with all of the people touching him, is so interesting to me to see to think about how he may have carried himself in that circumstance with all of these, just the frantic hands, touching him, and calling his name mm-hmm. and yelling to him, and how he needed to stay, you know, temperate and measured and self-controlled in those circumstances is, is just interesting to me mm-hmm. to think of the chaos that must have ensued when people know that he's performing these miracles and the different opinions of it, of, of him, just Jesus walking through the street. Uh, and then we have, we have the woman come while he's walking on his way to, to uh, the little girl's house we have people touching him, but then we have uh, a woman who who has who touches his his garment in a different way. There's a dis, there's right. something different about the way that she approached him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's uh, there's some things I think, and I don't I don't quite know what to conclude about him. But that's one of the joys of doing this is getting to process with. Uh, somebody else but there's a Jewish like they're back in, in a Jewish territory engaged with a synagogue leader who says first of all falls at his feet it says um, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue Jairus by name and seeing him fell at his feet which is interesting mm. uh, so he falls at his feet that's a that's a a a recognition of authority and honor. Uh, 
that's something you see happen in the previous episode where he interacts with the demon-possessed man who also falls at his feet, the demonic possession. So the demons essentially are, are falling at the feet of Jesus, recognizing his authority. And so now you have a Jewish synagogue ruler falling at his feet. And his request is, my little daughter's at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her. So touch her. Right? Heal her is the implication there, but by way of touch. Then he's going through the crowd and he's being touched all over. And when we get into Levitical law, there's a lot of ways that somebody becomes unclean. And very specifically, a woman with a discharge of blood was unclean, A. And anyone who touched her, even if your clothes touched her, you were made unclean. And there was all kinds of rituals and ceremonies one had to do in order to become clean and after that. And so it's fascinating that he is, that whole incident happens. He's, his garment's touched by her. Then he goes into, and, you know, she gets healed. So rather than him getting unclean, she becomes cleaned. Which is very interesting because you think about all of the Jewish rituals around cleanliness that were given by God, but it, you went through these things because you're unclean, and so the the process by which you become clean and acceptable in society again was was pretty involved, and that there were laws against even touching one's garment because even that level of exposure to the uncleanliness would cause you to be unclean. But here, instead of becoming unclean, Jesus causes cleanliness. So what's transmitted is not uncleanness, but cleanliness, which is fascinating. So it's a reversal of the fallen nature of the world. And so do you think that that is also symbolic for uh, for what Jesus did for man and the idea that we will be uh, cleansed of our sin if yes. we believe, and then physically that actually happened in terms of her disease in a literal sense. I think there is a a component of that's why this passage is potentially significant for us. And I think we'll find as we continue to wrestle with what's here and what it means, that significance, I'm guessing, will become even more clear. So I think, yeah, Let's uh, let's hang on to that and see if see if something else develops around that, because she then so there and there's interesting there's a parallel between her twelve years this woman's discharge of blood for twelve years as it says in verse twenty five, and the fact that the little girl was twelve years of age in verse forty two. That the expectation was that. Jesus was going to lay his hands on the little girl to heal her. And he would have been, by all standards, Levitical standards, he would have been unclean because that woman had touched his his garment. But he wasn't unclean. She became clean. She was healed of her disease. He sends her and blesses her and says, Peace, go about your way. And then the idea of touching a 
dead body would also make one clean or unclean. So you didn't touch dead bodies in the Jewish context this way. If you did, you went through a process of cleansing. And so the presumption is that this little girl's dead. She's, uh, she's contaminated, right? In both instances, there's this sense in which the, the fallen world that in which we live and the fallen nature of man has contaminated us. But notice what Jesus does is he gets, he deals with the c- contamination and purifies it, makes it so there's no contamination anymore. He addresses this woman and her discharge of blood. And then he goes into this daughter who is presumed to be dead and says she's not dead, she's alive, takes her by the hand, and she's healed. So he touches her. He does another thing that would have been Levitically unclean according to the law. And yet he doesn't become contaminated or unclean. She becomes purified and alive and well. So there's some, and I think understanding the Jewish context, like we're always wrestling with, okay, if, the, if we understand what's said here, okay, so we've, we see the scene, and then we wrestle with what does this mean? Specifically, what does it mean in that moment? So you've got the people that are present observing and walking with Jesus and all of this. So you've got some the cast of characters, Jesus and his disciples. You've got a crowd, which is largely Jewish. You've got the synagogue ruler and th- that whole, I don't know if it's his family, but at least him. And you've got family friends of this ruler that are standing by and have observed that by the time they get there, the daughter's dead and believe that to be true. And then Jesus healing in these two instances the way that he does by way of physical touch, which would defy the the kind of parameters of that community yeah some interesting things how do you think that lands maybe with the disciples but then also with the crowd and then also with Jairus like you've got these three people observing these two events because we know that prior to this the disciples are still wrestling with who like we know Jesus we follow him but there are times in which they're still like, who is this guy? Because on the sea, you know, not not too long before this, he calms the, the storm just by verbally telling the wind and the water to stop. And it's still. And they walk away from that moment going, who is this that even the waves and the wind obey him? Who's this guy? Yeah. <laughs> then he... He comes upon this in this Gentile region, this guy completely possessed by a legion of like thousands of demons, and the demon's first action is falling at his feet. Then they go back over to the other side of the sea. First thing that happens, get out, great crowd gathered about him, and this Jewish ruler falls at his feet. What do you think the disciples are processing this like? Okay, something gives. What's what's happening? Okay. 
There's something building in their understanding. Yeah, they're constantly confused, aren't they? <laughs> they they always have this uh, this posture of I don't know what's going on, and I don't even understand half the parables that he says. But they they speak with their actions of I'm whatever it is. I'm dropping everything. Yeah, to follow him. Yeah, and I'll follow you anywhere. But they. Like you said, it's it's been a renewal of their minds from everything that they that was indoctrinated in them of the old law of what is going on. This is so upside down. Mm-hmm. But he's performing these miracles and he's he's saying these things. Uh, but they're so contrary to to our belief, and so you have this. Jairus comes up and just falls at his feet, and you hear. I always you always hear the feet of Jesus laid at the feet of Jesus, the feet of mm-hmm. Jesus. And uh, that was the first thing that I thought of when it said it, it fell at his feet. Of It's this idea of you're not handing it. You're not at eye level with Jesus, looking him in the eye. And and, and um, I don't know, does that make sense? You're, you are- You're it, submitting. It, you're, yeah, it gives the connotation that you are, you are lower and you're placing something at his feet, at yeah. his lowest portion. And that that is enough too. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, I mean, kind of the way we were talking about even your posture of prayer, right? There's a, a submission, a, a posture of humility before him that's demonstrated here. You know, the episode before this, it's the winds and the waves submit to him. Next, the, the legion, the thousands of demons, first response is submission to him a recognition of who he is and his authority. Here is a Jewish ruler submitting. Yeah. What do you make of of some of these kind of Jewish faux pas? Like this stuff about, here's this, this idea of being dirty, contaminated, unclean is a term that's used a lot. And some of the things that are kind of under the surface in the context of these, these two, you know, instances of healing, you know, this idea of Jesus being made, potentially being made unclean by the the woman's actions, but she so is convinced that he, her, her last resort is him. And I don't know if she felt like she's going to risk it because her actions could cause him to be this rabbi, this teacher. We don't know if she knows who he is. She just, she's convinced um, if I touch his, even his garments, I will be made well. Mm. So she's convinced that even that level of exposure, whoever he is, that will make me better. Mm. That's the level of faith that she has. And that's what he identifies. He says, your faith has made you well. Your your absolute wholehearted belief in my ability to make you well just by even touching my garment, that's healed you. That confidence in me and what I can do. Yeah, there's uh, there was a big issue of a People magazine with Jesus's face on it that I saw recently that in the, the title was, uh, Who Do You Say I Am? And you see all of these different people here uh, who are coming in contact with him, who are saying his name, but 
that that's that's the question and, and and that faith is based on who you think that he is and and what he's capable of and that seems to be the difference in the woman who believed that just a touch to him would make her well it's interesting too that Verse 33, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. So she acts out of faith first, then comes the fear. Like, uh-oh, maybe I crossed a line. But she had, she was healed. Like she felt the healing occur in her body before he's like, hey, who did that? But now she's healed and she's like, I know what I did. So out of fear, she goes and just totally confesses here's what i did so there's faith and then there's this fear and reverence then notice with what he tells jairus in verse 36 but overhearing what they said because they're saying oh, your daughter's dead why even bother the teacher anymore what's the point jesus says do not fear only believe which it's the same greek word there pistis for faith and belief so he's saying, do not fear, but have faith. And the woman has faith, and then it leads. So there's this interesting flow of the request for for help. He agrees to go help. Then there's a woman who just believes so much so and just doesn't ask for help, just acts out of faith, which leads to fear. Then... Jairus hears that his daughter's dead and Jesus says, don't fear, have faith. And so then actions happen and Jesus initiates this healing of her by touching her. Um, You know what else is interesting in that is that it's not just Jesus walking and then she becomes healed and then Jesus just keeps walking. There's something distinct distinct about him stopping stopping and wanting to know who it was. And then feeling that power, what does it say? He said he felt power go out from him. He felt the power go out from him. Yeah. So there's this uh, personal connection too of of him wanting to know who it was, and then what, and then almost uh, auditing her heart, and then and he looked around to see who had done it. And so now he's he's looking around and he wants to now figure out who touched me and why. And maybe almost like that there I wonder if there was a he knew somebody had exercised great faith for that to have happened. Cuz it makes it seem like he he didn't initiate the healing of her. Yeah. Exactly. Right, that he's just going about his business and his garments touch, but there's such a demonstration of faith by a human in him that she's healed, and he's like, not like he's looking around like, who did this? Like, how dare you? But almost like, I want to find who has that faith. Yeah. Who's got that? Who who has the faith that that just, like, power went out for me? So, yeah, we don't know what his mood was about that, but... That's pretty interesting, and it for me causes all kinds of questions. Wait a minute, like you know, you exercise that kind of faith and just believe. 
and and we're told that faith as small as a mustard seed can move mountains. So this idea of just completely being convinced. Now, it doesn't mean that if I sit here and go, I believe that when I walk out these doors, there will be a Ferrari in that parking lot. (laughs) I don't know that that's that's what it is. Which is a big movement right now Mm -hmm. is the manifestation movement and how you can manifest anything that you want. Yeah. Uh, Positive power of positive thinking. And yeah, that, you know, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. When you think about desire is seated in the heart. So if you delight yourself, like that's delight is in the heart. So if you delight yourself in the Lord and he becomes your delight, then you'll get what you desire, which is the Lord. A lot of people misread that scripture to go, oh, that must mean if I just worship God, he'll give me what I really want. Well, no, what that passage is saying is if he is what you really want, that's the beauty of the gospel is that you get him. Anyway, we're on a side tangent here. Yeah. All righty, so we wrestled with what this says and, and what it means, you know, the implications for this immediate group, uh, the disciples, for Jairus, and for the crowd, for the woman, for the daughter. If you had to summarize maybe kind of a, a, a theme here for all that are present, what does this mean to them? You said it's got to flip their world upside down. There's got to be a way in which everything they thought about the world, everything they thought about what's normal is now being challenged. And they now have to start to see things through the lens of this Jesus guy and who he is and what he's capable of. That he's the one that can take contaminated, unclean people and causes them to be clean, and he doesn't become contaminated. He's got that kind of power. Mm. That, that he doesn't get dirty. People get clean when they touch him or interact with him. Yeah, and uh, I, I was just looking at it, and the sentence that stood out to me, it says, and they laughed at him mm. when he told them that she wasn't dead. Yeah. So it's this idea that... The, uh, the people of that time, they were, uh, they were weeping and they were wailing. And then when Jesus came to them with uh, the truth of the solution, they just laughed because it was so far outside of their comprehension that, that, yeah. that something like that could happen or that a man could come in and do what he was about to do. Yep. And then you have another woman who, who, fought through the crowd and said, if I just touch his cloak, it'll happen. Then you have others who are laughing at the idea of that, of that happening. So Mm -hmm. it's just such an interesting idea of uh, the different eyes that see the same thing, but they, they see it differently and they hear it differently. Yeah, buddy. So when you wrestle with that, how do we experience or how do you experience that meaning today? which is where we find the significance, right? That we're wrestling with. You had mentioned earlier, 
is this a is there a reference to the truth that this is what Jesus does for us? He comes in and deals with our un, uncleanness, our contaminated hearts, our contaminated desires, our contaminated thoughts, all the the kind of the filth that runs through our and courses through our veins. And he, when we come to him, he deals with that. Yeah, my uh, my very literal mind, the first thing I think of in, in summary and how it applies to me is just this guy healed someone's disease just when they touched his garment. And then he brought someone to life who was dead. And how can I live today as if that were true? Hmm. Because either either he is a crazy person claiming to be God or this is true and I should listen to every word that he said and it's the only thing that matters. And uh, that's the first literal takeaway that I have from it is that, wow, Jesus was here and healed diseases and, and literally rose a little girl from the dead who, when, when everyone was laughing at him. Mm. And then number two is this amazing symbolism of how can I lay what I have at the feet of Jesus and then audit my heart to say, do I really believe this? Mm-hmm. Do I really believe that if I just could touch his garment that I would be healed and that he would cleanse me of my sin? Or do I have this false belief in my head that my sin is too great for him to heal? Yeah. Have I hardened my heart to where I turn away when I sin and I don't go directly to him uh, because of pride? And how can I just be like the woman and fall down and tell him the whole truth? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a good word. I think too, the the moments in which he recognizes faith over fear, that, or faith over unbelief, right? The laughing of the crowd, the the people that are gathered, they're like, "What? No, you totally, you're misjudging this whole thing." And he's like, "Am I?" And then he goes in and just rocks the house, right? There. Every one of us on a daily basis has circumstances or uh, experiences that we either get to completely believe what Jesus has said and who he is and what his, what he's capable of in our life today as much as he was there, or we don't. We either believe it or we don't. And every day we get to demonstrate that, whether it's a physical illness in your life or my life or maybe a loved one and the way that we trust the Lord in the midst of that. And it may not even be trusting the Lord for physical healing. It may be trusting the Lord that maybe that he's in the season, that he's aware and that he is sovereign over it. And maybe the illness is is leading us somewhere. Because in both of these cases, if the illness had not been present, the faith wouldn't have been demonstrated. But the illness was an opportunity for faith in Christ to take place and for him to show up. Mm. Right? If there was if this woman hadn't had a discharge of blood for 12 years and all these physicians hadn't failed her, we wouldn't have had this incident happen. 
but that was the case. And there was this moment where that, those circumstances allowed her to reach out and cry out because she had tried everything else. It wasn't wasted. No, it was absolutely uh, worth it. And you see this, like no father wants his daughter to be sick and facing death. But you see this incident where, man, what did this develop in the life of that father that, that couldn't have happened otherwise? But it was totally worth it. So do we believe that there is a God who is capable, even in horrific circumstances, to show up and that it may be, not in spite of, but specifically through those circumstances, that he wants to develop and bring us to a point of belief and not fear. And every day we have those opportunities to respond by faith and recognizing that each of these experiences on a daily basis, even if brought about by sin, are a gift of the Lord. And you can tell me what you think about this, but I, I hear, uh, I feel like this keeps coming up of uh, this idea of believing and that acknowledging that, acknowledging his authority and God's authority, but then a lack of trust in the, in the kind of, the difference between those two things. I was talking to a neighbor the other day and, and uh, I don't, I don't think he's a believer. I don't see the the fruit there. Um, but I remember casually bringing up Jesus with him and he goes, he goes, uh, I mean, I haven't been, I'm not involved in a church. I'm not really into prayer. I'm not super religious, but I believe. And I thought that there's this interesting acknowledgement. Like we know even the demons believe that he's God, but then yeah. asking yourself, do I trust him? Am I, am I like the woman who's, no, I'm going to go after him and I'm going to touch him. Because you can say you believe. If you're in the crowd, you could say, oh, I believe. Yeah. But you could believe that this chair is going to hold me, but until I sit in it, then it's just words. Yeah, and James has something to say about that, right? The, uh, the book of James in the New Testament, you see this, he, he uses the term faith and works, right? And works is simply a way of saying behavior what he essentially is saying that for somebody to say, I believe, or I have faith, but yet they don't live a life that, that is dependent on God. Well, then they're lying. The truth is not in them. Mm. And for somebody who, um, you know, so he says that saving faith will be accompanied by a lifestyle of dependence and demonstrating that trust and confidence in God through obedience and doing things his way. So when somebody's tempted by, uh, you know, or tempted to lust or something like that, and rather than give in to that, they say, I'm going to believe that God's way is best, even though that seems right now in the moment to be the most satisfying thing. I'm going to trust the Lord. And so they're exercising faith, right, over, um, and instead of saying, yeah, I believe, but I'm still going to do the stuff I want. So there is an element of in our obedience, we're demonstrating a true trust and a confidence in him. Yeah. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. Okay. Well, man, some powerful stuff today. This is a lot of text, a lot of reading, but some really good conversation. And there's probably so much that we just haven't unearthed here. And so my encouragement, if you are listening to this podcast or watching, hang out in this text a little more. And if there's stuff that you see or stuff that you're wrestling with, leave a comment. Uh, leave a comment uh, if you're you're watching on YouTube or Spotify, and just yeah, leave comments. I would love to see 
something happen within this podcast that as people engage with it, they begin a dialogue with each other through comments and stuff like that where they're engaging with each other over the scripture. So if there's stuff that you're wrestling with here and you see and you're like, man, what about that? What about this? Leave it in the comments. Uh, Like us, subscribe, share, tell others. We just want more people to know uh, what we're doing here because I want more people taking and reading the Bible. Absolutely. Uh, If you have a thought or a question that has kind of come up and you have something for Parker or myself, you can email me at takeandreadpodcast at gmail.com. And I love to get emails and working to respond to all the ones that I get. Uh, So I'm telling you, if you haven't heard a response, I'm working on it. I'm getting to it. Parker's got a really cool hat on. I've got a really cool hat. So we... uh, we're repping each other today. He's got a Take and Read podcast hat. That's the black on black version, which will be up soon. On the oh, it's uh, not released yet. It is not released yet. Uh, so it'll be up soon, so people can grab that if they want to. And then I've, of course, got one of the premier outdoor brand hats one could get, and that is a Yee Yee hat, which I'm stoked about. And uh, I saw one of these. I saw somebody wearing a Yee hat in Las Vegas. I was going through the airport, and I was like, shout out. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> I know it, Yee Well, so, anyway. Uh, so, yeah, go uh, Yee apparel. Go grab you a hat, a pair of swimming trunks, maybe a jacket. They got all kinds of cool stuff. Or get one of those huge window decals and rep it. Yes. Because when you're doing it, you're giving a shout out to Parker Smith and the gang. All righty. Thanks for being here. Love having you. Love getting to walk through life with you, but love taking and reading with you. Love being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, buddy. All right. Everyone out there, have a good one. Take and read.